Welcome back to a new episode of the Irish Times Book Club podcast. I'm Martin Doyle, books editor of the Irish Times, and in this podcast I'm talking to Helen Cullen about her novel The Lost Letters of William Wolfe. Our chat was recorded in late October at the Waterford Writers' Festival. One day earlier, Helen was shortlisted for the Newcomer of the Year Award at the 2018 Anne Post Irish Book Awards. Helen, could I start off by asking you to maybe introduce yourself uh, a little bit as a debut author, perhaps you're a bit of a blank, blank slate to, uh, to readers here tonight? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I grew up in the Midlands in Leash, and we always actually came to Waterford on our holidays to Chamor, so it's lovely being back here, especially for something so lovely as to talk about my book. And um, I think I came to writing a little bit later than some writers, who I often hear talking about the fact that they wrote their first short story when they were a child and then they just kept going. I think for me, I had this feeling that writers were born and not made, and that if I was meant to be writing books, it would have somehow happened automatically. You know, that real writers were up all night, compelled to tell these stories and because it didn't happen automatically for me that meant it wasn't something I was supposed to do so even though I had this instinct that I'd love to write and it was always what I dreamed of doing when I was younger it took me a long time to have the confidence to really sit down and try and do it but I think then when I got into my 30s eventually the fear of never writing my own book overcame the fear of not being able to do it and I decided to try and I joined a writing workshop that was framed as helping you get to the first draft of your novel. And the very first thing I wrote for that, or wrote ever, was the first chapter of this book. So, <laughs> so um, in many ways, it's although um, maybe a late start is actually um, be quite a, a swift progression then to go from the very first thing that you wrote actually ended up as the first chapter of your book. I think that's a, a pretty um, rare occurrence. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the, the uh, creative writing workshop then? It was done uh, with Michelle Roberts, the Booker Shortlisted yeah. author. And I think there was a lot of serendipity in um, the, the workshop that came along for me. I think Michelle was the perfect mentor for me. And I was really blessed that the group of writers that also joined the course were completely committed to writing their books. The very first week, Michelle said to us that one of the hardest things that aspiring writers overcome is believing that they are a writer and that for some reason, unlike other creative professions, you almost need some kind of external permission to call yourself a writer. And she said to us that week, so from now on, we're all writers here together and we're taking this work very seriously. So everybody showed up every week, having read everyone else's work, having written their own work, and we're, we really believed in each other's process and in the books that we were writing. So it was an amazing group to be part of because I really felt like everybody was really invested in me finishing it. And it kind of gave me this sense of accountability because I knew that if I showed up one week and I had nothing to present, they would have been saying to me, oh, Helen, you know what happened? And, you know, we were counting on you, you know, this week that we'd hear what happened next. And it was an amazing environment to start to write in. And I think um, Michelle was such a fabulous mentor that she really helped everyone to just keep going and get to the end of the process. And that was maybe the biggest gift she gave us was that 
she just dispelled any idea about writer's block. She mm-hmm. doesn't think it exists. And that um, you don't necessarily have to write your story chronologically. So if you reach a point where you're not sure what happens next, that's fine. You just take your characters. You could bring them to the zoo for the day. It might have nothing to do with your story as you perceive it at the moment. But by just taking your characters and putting them into any scenario, just writing your way through it, you may discover something about them mm-hmm. or about what you're trying to say that wasn't clear to you before. So she always encouraged us to work through the block Um, even if it didn't feel completely directed to what we thought we were writing. And as a result, we just ended up, you know, pushing through and getting to Mm -hmm. the end. It was amazing. Lovely. Um, Perhaps before we talk um, about the the themes of the book, Mm -hmm. would you like to read maybe the the first um, first couple of pages to give people a sense of what it is we're talking about? Yes, of course, I'd love to. Um, So as Martin said, the uh, novel is set in the Dead Letters Depot of East London. So I'll read to you from the very beginning because it sort of introduces you to the world where these letter detectives um, spend their days. Um, So at the very beginning, there's an epigraph from a John Donne poem called To Sir Henry Wooden, and it reads, More than kisses, letters mingle souls. And then we start. Lost letters have only one hope for survival. If they are caught between two worlds, with an unclear destination and no address of sender, the lucky ones are redirected to the dead letters depot in East London for a final chance of redemption. Inside the damp, rising walls of a converted tea factory, letter detectives spend their days solving mysteries. Missing postcodes, illegible handwriting, rain-smudged ink, lost address labels, torn packages, forgotten street names. They are all culprits in the occurrence of missed birthdays, unknown test results, bruised hearts, unaccepted invitations, silenced confessions, unpaid bills, and unanswered prayers. Instead of longed for missives, disappointment floods postboxes from Land's End to Dunnet Head. Hope fades a little more every day when doorbells don't chime and doormats don't thud. William Wolfe had worked as a leisure detective for 11 years. He was one of an army of 30, having inherited his position from his beloved uncle Archie. Almost every Friday throughout William's childhood, Archie, clad in a lime green leather jacket, wrote his yellow Honda Daydream 305 over for tea, eager to share fish and chips doused in salt and vinegar served with a garlic dip and tales of the treasures rescued that day. Listening to Archie opened William's mind to the myriad extraordinary stories that were unfolding every day in the lives of ordinary people. In a blue-lined copybook, he wrote his favourites and unwittingly began what would become a lifelong obsession with storytelling, domestic mysteries and the secret stranger's nurse. What surprised William most when he started working there himself was how little Archie had exaggerated. People send the strangest paraphernalia through the post. Incomprehensible and indefensible, sentimental and valuable, erotic and bizarre, alive and expired. In fact, it was the dead animals that so frequently found their way to the inner sanctum of the postal system that had inspired the dead letter depot's name. A photo taken in 1937, the year it had opened, showed the original postmaster, Mr. Frank Oliphant, holding a pheasant and hare aloft, with three rabbits stretched on the table before him. By the time William joined in 1979, it was a much more irregular occurrence, of course, but the name still endured. He still felt Archie's presence amid the exposed red brick walls of the depot, and some of the older detectives sometimes called William by his uncle's name. 
Their physical similarities were striking. Muddy brown curls, chestnut beards flecked with rust, the almond-shaped hazel eyes that flickered between shades of emerald green and cocoa, the bump in the nose of all wolf men. In a vault of football field proportions hidden below Shoreditch High Street, row upon row of the peculiar flotsam and jetsam of life awaited salvation. Pre-war toy soldiers, vinyl records, military memorabilia, astrology charts, paintings, pounds and pennies, wigs, musical instruments, fireworks, soap, cough mixture, uniforms, fur coats, boxes of buttons, chocolates, photo albums, porcelain teacups and saucers, teddy bears, medical samples, seedlings, weapons, laundry, fossils, dentures, feathers, gardening tools, books, books, books. Copious myths and legends passed from one colleague to another. Stories of the once lost, but now found. Thank you. <clears throat> Beautifully read. You. Um, so could you just tell us uh, in a few words for anyone who hasn't read the book, um, sum up um, what it's about? <gasps> well, so William Wolfe, the protagonist um, that is named in the title, is one of the letter detectives who's working in the Dead Letters Depot. And he starts to discover letters written by a woman to her great love whom she's never met. So she's sending off these letters like messages in a bottle out into the universe and they end up in the dead letters depot along with all the other mail that um, gets lost on its way. And William starts finding these letters and becomes increasingly intrigued by her and ultimately feels compelled to try and find out who she is. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Intriguing. <laughs> No, actually, it's interesting because when, when you start um, reading the book, um, first of all, you're introduced, I think uh, I'm right in saying so, to, to William and his relationship with um, his wife, Claire. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting then to, to learn. We, we had a chat earlier on. Hopefully we haven't left all the best lines <laughs> on, the, on the training pitch. But it was interesting for me to learn, actually, that the, the genesis of the book wasn't the husband and wife relationship. But would you like to say mm. um, where, where it started, yes. the kernel of this multifaceted book? Absolutely. So I think um, the book really began for me with that line from the John Donne poem, The More Than Kisses, Letters Mingle Souls. When I sat down to start trying to write something, that was the first line that I um, put on the page. I was slightly thrown yeah. by that because I was pretty sure John Donne wrote yeah. that, but we got over um, that. He, you know, he got there first, mm. but it, um, and that, that sort of opened up my thinking about what I wanted to write about. And it became clear to me that this idea about the lost art and the power of letters and letter writing um, was something I really wanted to explore. So that led me on to think about if somebody fell in love with someone that they only knew through their letters, and then ultimately met them in real life, would they, would they be exactly like they'd hoped? You know, would they have met a truer version of them in the letters that they'd written? Or would they have been able to curate this idyllic version of themselves that then they couldn't live up to in person? So I started thinking about this and the idea of this woman, Winter, writing to her great love and exploring her own ideas about love and what she might want from it um, came into being. And so then I ended up with a woman writing letters and she was going to post them to nobody. So where would they go? And I thought that I had invented this world of the dead letters depot where all the undelivered mail would, would um, find itself. And I thought then, well, who's going to be working in the depot and who will find these letters? And this lovely man, William Wolfe, came into being. So I found myself then at a position where I kind of had the um, kind of big picture concept of the book, but I didn't want it to be as simple or as easy that he would find these letters 
he would decide he was going to fall in love with her he would find her and that he would um, because I really wanted to really think about this juxtaposition we have between the way romantic love is portrayed mm-hmm. and in the arts and in the media and in culture versus the pragmatic reality of actually sustaining a relationship over a long period of time so I gave him that dilemma by um, thinking about what was driving him to respond so much to these letters, what was missing in his life that made him think that this was for him. And from that, it became clear to me that he was in a marriage and that they were fractured now and really struggling, even though once upon a time he had thought he had already found his great Mm -hmm. love. Um, So we kind of have this push and pull all the time between him really exploring his own ideas about what love in your life should mean. And if he really wants to have a true love in his life, should he be at home trying to salvage the relationship with his wife and save Mm -hmm. their marriage? Or should he surrender to this sort of dream he has of what, you know, love might be? Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of pull and uh, push throughout, yeah. I think. Now, it's really interesting. It's to long sort of answer. S- <laughs> no, well, I find it really interesting just to see how an idea evolves and how one thing leads to another. And then suddenly you have an entire world from what is just, mm. you know, one um, small, however clever idea. I and No, and I think that that's something that's really um, was an amazing thing for me to learn and that I think people who are aspiring to write, it's it's something that often trips you up that people stop because they don't know how the story is going to unfold or they haven't worked it all out yet. And I think if I had been waiting until I had this whole book plotted out in my mind before I started writing, I never would have written it. Mm -hmm. I really learned that for me... The creativity bit only happens when I create the opportunity for it to happen. Mm -hmm. So I work out the whole book on the page. And, um, you know, I think it's very liberating to know that you can start a novel without knowing how you're going to finish it and still Mm -hmm. believe you can get there. There's a great line, I don't know who it's from now, but it sort of describes writing as like um, driving a car and you can only see as far as the headlights, you know, project in front of you. Mm. And so there's no sense of knowing ultimately, you know, what is the end of the destination. It's just, you know... Just keep um, going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, I was also thinking just, you know, when we were chatting earlier on, I, you know, it sounds initially hopelessly romantic, this idea of uh, Winter, the Irish emigrant in, in England, writing um, these sort of, you know, letters, um, hoping to find or trying to communicate um, through letters or whatever. Um, and it sounds hopelessly romantic. And then I kind of thought, well, hold on a minute. It sounds exactly like online dating, how that starts with just sort of, you know, written communication before you actually meet the other person. Anyway, mm. no, just a thought. It's so interesting because until you said that to me, it had never occurred to me before, mm. you know, that that's essentially what we're doing when people are online dating now. And um, yeah, it's a really interesting thing to think mm. about, you know, that you're investing in someone based on just the information they're sharing with you, mm. but you don't really know who the person at the other end of the screen mm. is any more than William didn't know who was at the other end writing the letters. A romantic quest. Mm. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and actually, we were sort of talking, I was kind of, well, one of the reasons I wanted to know what your second um, novel is about is because I was kind of thinking, you know, on the evidence of this, um, your subject matter is love or, or the loss of love or the pursuit of love or actually what love is. And then I was thinking, well, her second novel could be about something completely different. Mm. Um, but actually, maybe just while we're here there, could you maybe say just a little something about um, yeah. your your second novel, just so we kind of Yeah, know. of course. Um, I've only written the first draft of it, so it's with my editor in Penguin at the moment. Um, but I think, I think I guess, in, a, in answer to your first part about, um, you know, me thinking about love, 
in essence, I think all stories are about love or the absence of love. And we could probably struggle to find any novel or story that isn't driven by love or the absence of it. And I think that's something that I definitely think a lot about. And also what gives us hope in dark times. So even if we're living in this world where it can be so difficult, you know, to understand everything that's going on around us, still we persevere. And where do people find that hope that motivates them to keep going? And um, I've heard writers say before that we keep telling the same story over and over again with just different characters. And I definitely think that's true because there are themes I, I do keep coming back to. But in the second novel... Uh, the protagonist is a man called Mortag Moon and he lives on an island off the west coast of Ireland. And in a nutshell, basically, the novel opens up with a tragedy for his family. And um, then we go back in time and we see Mortag uh, when he was 18 and in university in Dublin and training to be a potter. And his whole life is ahead of him and he meets the woman who's going to become his wife, Maeve. So we chart their life together, leaving Dublin, moving to the island, having their children and up until the point where this tragic um, incident happens to their family. And then the novel keeps going mm. and we see how each member of the family copes or doesn't cope or learns to find love again, or learns to love again, or doesn't. You know, so we see, I'm really interested in that moment of fracture and why some people are able to use it as a catalyst to go on and do something amazing with their life, or some people get stuck and find it really difficult mm -hmm. to move on. Um, so, I mean, one really easy way to explain the novel is that Murtag makes these uh, kintsugi pots which is a Japanese kind of pottery where when pots get broken, they recreate them using silver and gold filament. Mm -hmm. So they are more beautiful because of the fractures and because of the cracks than they were before. Mm. So that's something I really yeah. wanted to think Rather about. Rather than hide novel. the cracks, they exactly. accentuate them to sort of celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. And that sometimes things need to be broken in order for them to be put back, to, to have, for them to grow and be put back together in a new way that mm -hmm. allows them to become something more. Yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's interesting what you said there about, you know, all stories being about love, whatever. And then there's a thing earlier on when the two characters, um, William um, and Claire, are talking and they kind of almost fall in love. They meet at a, a book club that he set up at university. And one of the books that they talk about um, is um, Pride and Prejudice mm -hmm. um, and Mr. Darcy. And there's the line that, um, you know, people fall in love or women fall in love with Mr. Darcy because he changes yeah. for the love of a good woman, <laughs> yeah. which actually um, is, a, is a very bad example. It's because a terrible that leads example. To, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, how many it also foreshadows. <laughs> it also foreshadows um, the relationship um, that they go on to have because she wants, well, rather he changes and she wants him to, to change in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think so. And there's something very, very heartbreaking about, um, you know, we meet William and Claire at the beginning of their lives together and you see how much they adore each other and in that moment, how perfectly they are matched. Mm. And they have so much potential for this really happy life together. And then they don't become the people they expect from each other. And I think one of the most damaging things that can happen to a relationship is disappointment. You know, when, when somehow someone ends up being a disappointment to the other. And that's definitely what happens with them, where they just, they feel like they haven't grown into the people that they had promised they would be to each other mm -hmm. and it's impossible to do that when you're there at their age they're in university they're maybe like 20 when they meet so they couldn't possibly know who they're going to become but mm -hmm. they're optimistic about who they might be and it doesn't quite align mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, let me see. Um, your book has done very well, but as, as well as being successful as a book, it has also been optioned for television mm -hmm. by the people who made Downton Abbey and Broadchurch, mm -hmm. which is must be hugely exciting for for a debut novelist. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, I think um, it is really exciting. And when the two women who, um, Sally and Laura, came to talk to me about the book and their ideas for it, it was an amazing experience because they, I felt they completely understood what I'd been trying to do with the novel. And the things that they had zoned in on that they wanted to try and recreate in television were the exact list of things I would hope that somebody would if they were going to try and create it. Um, so fingers crossed it will get made and we'll get seat in television. These things, are, there's a long road. <laughs> but they're quite ambitious, obviously, because they've optioned it for five series, so it's not as if it's a kind of a, a dip the toe in the water or whatever. They actually genuinely believe that it has the potential to, so. to be a long-running series. And my book will be the first series and then it will continue on. So that's a, a really interesting thing for me to think about. Mm. And the role I'm going to have is basically trying to help them carve out how the story will continue. Because apart from what's presented in the book, I know so much more about all the characters and their lives beforehand and had so many other um, things that might have shown up on the depot, ideas for other letters mm -hmm. or other mysteries that the detectives might have solved. So I'm going to share that content with them to help try and make more story out of it. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder all these backstories or the, the amount of effort that goes into, that authors talk about how much research they do into what the characters like to eat or drink or the music they like and so forth. Um, and this time it sounds like that's actually um, a rich well of material that you can dr draw mm -hmm. on, as you say, for, for future mm -hmm. efforts. One other thing um, that you uh, mentioned is it kind of reminded me of the idea that it takes a village to, to raise a writer in the sense that so many people um, from so many different walks of life help out a writer's career. Mm -hmm. And you were telling me how actually uh, you shared an agent, uh, Peter Strauss, um, with Niall Williams mm -hmm. and how he um, got involved or whatever in the... Well, what happened was um, Peter is my agent, but he was Niall's editor. Mm. Um, Peter was an, an editor and the main, main uh, publisher for Picador before he became an agent. And when I submitted my book to agents for consideration for them to represent me, when he called me to talk about it, he said that it had given him the same feeling as when he had read Niall's book, Four Letters of Love, I mean, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. maybe. Which um, is close to my heart because <laughs> my daughter, Isabel, is named after the lead character in Four Letters of Love. So, oh, brings it, it home. And at the, mo at the time, to my shame, when um, Peter mentioned it to me, I hadn't read Four Letters of Love. But immediately did afterwards, of course, you know, I raced off to read it and I thought it was absolutely amazing. And then subsequently, um, you know, was researching Niall's other books and seeing what else he had done. And I saw he was doing a writing workshop in Kiltumper in County Clare. And I headed off for the three days and um, himself and his wife, Christine Breen, who they were writing partners together before Niall published Four Letters of Love. They've done loads of work together mm -hmm. and they host this amazing writing workshop in Kiltumper. So anybody who is remotely interested in writing or exploring their own writing, I couldn't recommend it enough. I felt that I was completely rejuvenated having this experience of learning from Niall um, in his home. And um, just the way things unfold then, Niall and I have the same film agent in London and when he went to a meeting with Main Street who were optioning my book 
they were talking about different books that you know they had read and um, Christina Nile had read for uh, Lost Letters and he suggested it to them as something that they might like and then they read it and went oh this is one we have to do and so Niall is actually now coming on board to write the first mm-hmm. um, script as you know the kind of first kind of test script mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. all do you know to see if it's going to work so it's all kind of come full circle Fantastic. it's amazing yeah <laughs> and one of the things they really liked about it was they described it uh, like it was fascinating they wrote an article for the way the book club works is that um, over the course of uh, a month, we'll publish maybe half a dozen or eight articles um, about the book, and one of them is is by the the team who are hoping to to turn Lost Letters into a TV series. And one of the, the things that they were saying about it was they loved the fact that it had this what they call a hero location, the Dead Letters uh, depot at the centre of it, and also the fact that there were so many stories. There was no fear for them that it would sort of run out of road because, like, it strikes me reading it that um, the book is interspersed with letters from um, that um, the letter detectives are reading to kind of find out um, if they can put it in the hands of um, its rightful recipient. Mm. Uh, So with some uh, novels, you kind of think, might this have started off as a short story or could it have been done as a short story? Whereas The Lost Letters of William Wolfe, there are so many stories in it, mm. it's, it would have been impossible. You wouldn't even mm. consider that as an option. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it was it was unwittingly just the greatest gift to give myself by putting setting a book in this world where anything could happen because I could have a letter written by anyone on any subject or have any item show up in the post and then William and the other detectives try and solve the mysteries of where all these things came from so as I was going about my life in London little bits of real life would filter their way into the book because I'd read something really interesting or I'd observe a bit of human behaviour that gripped my attention and if you were maybe writing a different book you might have to just bank that and think oh that could be a short story later but Mm -hmm. I had the luxury of being able to then turn that into a letter or a story that the detectives were solving so it was amazing to have that Mm -hmm. you know kind of flexibility to be able to explore lots of different ideas and in many ways I think some of these stories some of these letters could have been a whole book in themselves if we just kept going (laughs) but it's just a little kind of nugget. And bizarrely you actually dreamt up the idea um, of the Dead Letters Depot um, and yet you discovered that actually um, it exists. I know, it was the biggest shock because I thought that I had invented this amazingly interesting place where um, this fantastical job happened. And then after I'd written the first draft and was kind of in my editing stage, I opened up the Guardian newspaper one day and there was an interview with an actual letter detective. And um, this place exists in Belfast and there are hundreds of them doing mm. this job all the time, which is just you know, amazing to me. And I really hope I get to go and visit. We're hoping to get you in there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that would be a great article. Yeah. Um, so let me see, you started off, um, you were at college in DCU. DCU. Uh, studying communications, mm-hmm. is that right? Um, and you got your big break by being brave or bold enough to approach um, a DJ, not Rick O'Shea, um, <laughs> not that old. Um, tell us um, how that came about. Well, I guess I suppose it's just the sort of um, you know strange kind of pluck you have when you're a teenager before life teaches you to know better. But it was in my first freshers' week in DCU, and Dave Fanning was there doing uh, presenting a ro- the roller coaster gigs were happening at the time, and I was studying radio in um, as part of my communications degree. And I said to him that I'd love to come out and do work experience in RTE 
and in the kind of very kind way that Dave Wood, he sort of laughed at me and said, well, you and, you know, 5,000 other students. And But um, I made him take my mobile number and put it in his phone. And I said to him, you know, someday you'll be in the office and there'll be some horrible job that you don't want to do or you'll need an extra pair of hands and you have to ring me and I'll come and do it so that I get to look around and meet everybody. And then I, about six weeks later, I just got this call on my mobile and it was Dave and he was like, oh, Helen, it's Dave Anning here, you know, and he, um, came, I got, came out and did this admin he had, this big backlog of stuff he was getting in trouble for that he hadn't done. And I just kept going and never went home. So I, I always say now that if I ever meet Bono, I'm going to tell him that, you know, we, the thing we have in common is that Dave Fanning discovered us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and persistence pays off as a motto as well. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a great believer in... Um, you know that there's so obviously there's loads of things in life that are really difficult to make happen but that you really want to but you have to sort of just give yourself the chance for the magical thing Mm -hmm. because the chances of me actually ending up working in RT were so small you know I'd never met anyone who worked in the media I didn't know any broadcasters I didn't know any journalists you know it might never ever ever have happened other than just that kind of seizing the moment Mm -hmm. you know when it when it did and if I hadn't my life could have unfolded in a thousand different ways so I think it really taught me in life that if there's something you really want and you you get any kind of chance at it you have to just go Mm -hmm. for it Mm -hmm. because it just might work that time and music plays quite an important role both in the book but also in your creative process would you like to talk a little bit about that how you play music maybe to get you in the the right mental space well I think music and um, books were the two great loves of my life and um, I think one of the easiest ways for me to kind of cross the bridge from just the reality and all the things that are going on in the world and get into the world of the book is to play uh, music before I start to write. So if there's a particular mood that I know I'm going to try and create or there's something happening in the novel that connects with a type of um, a, a moment in time, I'll often play the music that I associate with that and it just sort of helps me get into the right frame of mind for it and it was one of the most enjoyable parts for me in writing the book was kind of creating the soundtrack that goes along with it and for your book club you know Mm -hmm. I've made the Lost Letters playlist that has all the songs that are featured in the book sprinkled through it and it was such a fun thing to go back through the book and put all the songs together and then I was looking at it going I'm this would be a really weird party (laughs) (laughs) it was almost to play all this through but it was an amazing thing to think about what would the characters be listening to? You know, you have moments where William Wolfe is walking uh, walking around Dublin, you know, listening to Morrissey and knowing that that's what he was doing, I felt like I was right there with him. You know, I could really imagine him walking over the Haypenny Bridge and what it would feel like to have been, you know, in, in the late 80s in Dublin, listening to Morrissey with how upset and heartbroken he was in that moment. It just, it sort of made it all really real for me. It all came together. So it's been a, ma- a really big part of the process for me. Your book is set in the late 80s, early yeah, 90s? Yeah, kind of 1989, yeah. 1990. That's funny, reading the article by the, the film or the TV people who are planning to adapt it, whatever, and they were sort of talking about nostalgia and the fact that it's set in this gentler, simpler era, which made me feel <laughs> extremely old that it's set in 1989 or 90. Uh, but anyhow, like there is a striking feeling of nostalgia uh, in your writing, um, like in many ways, it's not as if it's it's stuck in the past because the actual, you know, it's quite psychologically acute. The portrayal of the the feeling relationship at the centre of it is is not at all sort of 
um, old-fashioned. It's very up-to-date. But there is definitely um, a real feeling of a, a love and appreciation of maybe things that are now old-fashioned, like letter writing um, or... Um, sorry, I've lost my, uh, lost my thread of thought there. Um, and that's maybe one thing about that is that it's sort of slightly in contrast to the work that you were doing, mm. um, which was, uh, you're working for Google yeah. um, in London, which is, seems to be <laughs> almost um, yeah, the, the other antithesis end of, the of, of old fashioned or traditional. I know it's true. People have said this to me that it's quite funny that someone could be working in the tech industry and be so obsessed with, you know, letter writing. Um, but I really feel that, I suppose, first of all, my mother's ongoing motto in life is that everything in moderation is fine. So I think maybe that's how I feel about the tech stuff, that it's absolutely amazing, the advancements that have happened in our lifetime and how we can use technology for so much good. But I do worry that now when we can communicate so efficiently and so economically and so and constantly, you know, we're all available to each other 24 hours a day and um, available to the whole world online. And yet we've become more disconnected and lonelier than ever. And I think we've maybe lost a quality in the way that we communicate with each other because it's so disposable. So for me, it genuinely breaks my heart to think that there are people, young generations coming through, who will never know the thrill of an envelope landing on their doormat written, with their name written in the hand of someone who loves them. You know, I just think that's such a tragedy of our time. And um, I feel that there's something different about the way you communicate in a letter. I'm not sure if it's because you're closer to your subconscious or because you have to really think about what you're going to say before you commit it to the page because you can't really go back. But I do think that we talk to each other differently in letters than we do in any other medium. And that the absence of that in our lives, um, I think we're really beginning to feel mm -hmm. the loss of communicating in that way. And so I hope that in the way that Final Records made a comeback and that, you know, people making their own clothes made a comeback and more home cooking and this kind of need we have for tangible physical things. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that letters become part of that vogue. I'm basically on a letter writing revolution <laughs> and I hope you'll all join me. <laughs> Another interesting debate that sort of, it's a hardy perennial perhaps, but it's uh, the discussion about you know, um, whether a book is a literary book or a commercial book. And it's interesting actually sitting in this mm. beautiful bookshop, we're almost in a, like I talk about um, a spectrum of, of uh, literary stroke commercial work, whatever, mm. like, you know, there's no absolute um, and it ranges from left to right and here. I'm kind of looking, you go from Irish fiction, literary fiction, crime fiction, pop popular fiction. And actually, you know, some books could sit very happily in maybe two mm. or three of those categories. Um, there's a very striking um, quotation from, from Jessica uh, Leake, your um, publisher at Penguin. And she made the, the very valid point. It, it really struck me um, at the time, uh, the truth of it. And she said, it drives her mad. Whoever in the publishing industry came up with this idea that um, having coined the terms literary and commercial fiction, that they then insisted that the, the two um, could never go together, that they were mm -hmm. mutually exclusive, whereas you know, some of the best work is both literary and commercial, commercial 
meaning simply that it sells mm -hmm. in large numbers. And you know, certainly some of my favorite books um, have been bestsellers as well as being mm -hmm. literary. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, you know, what you what you thought about that yourself? Yeah, I think you're um, you're totally right. I think there's such a massive spectrum that all books sit within that if we try and put things in just one camp or the other, it's reductive for everybody. And um, I mean, I heard the novelist Kate Moss talking about this because someone asked her how she would define herself in this commercial literary, you know, divide. And she said that for her, she felt that commercial books were predominantly more interested in story and character. And perhaps literary fiction was um, more concerned with ideas and form. And I mean, that is, you know, still quite reductive because obviously there are books that will fit in with all of those things. But for me, I found it really interesting because I think... It's the ideas and the consideration of stylistically how I would represent those that get me to the page. But it's the stories and the character that keep me writing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sure there are lots of novelists who feel that way. And perhaps there are also novelists who feel that they really only care about the story and the character bit, and that's completely fine. Mm -hmm. Or they really only care about the experimental side of their writing, and they're really concerned about the language they use and their techniques, and they're less concerned about the characters and story. But somehow we're all sort of in there in that spectrum. And I just hope that, um, and I trust that readers can find the books that speak to them and that people aren't. I hope that people aren't ever put off from a book that they feel they would enjoy because it's considered literary fiction and they think that's not for them or they think that's commercial fiction and that's not for them because um, the literary universe is such a big one it's such a big tent and um, I think that m so many writers might get lost I think when you when you consider the really amazing literary fiction that are also massive big bestsellers we don't have to worry about those because they've all found their audience what I worry about is maybe like a few the, the kind of mid-list writers who are perhaps being pitched as literary fiction, but actually would have a massive readership if they were called something else, mm -hmm. or otherwise, you know, writers who are being marketed as commercial fiction, who literary readers think, oh, well, I wouldn't be interested in that because I read literary fiction and they're not reaching them either. Mm -hmm. So I think it's always kind of the, the people in the middle that get the most damaged by the labels that mean different things to different people. Thanks, Helen. I think that's well put. Um, I'm going to open it up to the floor <gasps> to uh, Q&A in a second. Mm. But maybe would you like to read another um, short sure, passage from yeah. well, the book? Um, maybe I'll, would you like to hear one of the letters from that they find in the depot? Okay. So um, the letters base for me as well offered a chance to introduce sort of a bit of light and shade. So sometimes if maybe we were uh, finding it a bit... Um, melancholy, they could find uh, maybe a funny letter or there would be um, an amusing anecdote that would come out of detectives going about their business. So there are, there are all different types of letters, but I think this one is my favourite. So I'll read you that one. My darling Nora, where are you today as you turn 21 and take your first steps into the world as a young woman? I try to imagine how you might look if your hair had stayed as black as it was on the day you were born, but grew into the curls I might have given you. I'm sure your eyes are still the cappuccino colour of your father's and your skin the colour of caramel, but I find it hard to picture you all grown up. You were such a tiny baby, just five pounds, so I would guess you are petite now, like me and your grandma before us, but maybe your legs and arms grew tall like your daddy's. It breaks my heart not to know and to think of you wondering which of your parents you took after or worrying that we didn't want you. I can't say how your daddy felt because he never knew, or at least I never told him, but I wanted you more than anything. 
When my belly grew big and they sent me away to the convent in Wales, I thought it was so I could bring you up there without anyone knowing. I had a story all made up in my head about how your father had passed away, leaving me a widow, that I'd had to sell my wedding ring to put a deposit on the flat. But that wasn't what they had in mind. After you were born, they only left you with me for a day before Sister Assumpta in the hospital came to me and said your new parents would be there to collect you in the morning. I tried to explain that there was some terrible mistake, but my father had signed the adoption papers. I was only 15, you see, and she said it was too late. I stayed up all night holding you in my arms. I must have eventually dozed off, though, because the next morning Sister Assumpta woke me as she snatched you and turned on her heel out of the ward. I raced after her, tripping up in my bedsheets as I ran, and made it halfway down the corridor before one of the orderlies grabbed me and wrestled me onto the floor. I could hear you crying through the sound of my own howls, but no matter how much I struggled, I couldn't get free. I remember how cold the tiles on the floor felt as I crumpled into a pile at the feet of the orderly and lay my cheek on the ground. From where I fell, 